Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, the Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate changemakers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Let's, uh, let's get right into it. All right, let's do it. Let, let's talk about your most recent uh, capital gains piece on corporate mortality. Why don't you unpack some of the, the main ideas you were trying to get across there? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Corporations are theoretically, legally immortal for the most part. Like you, you start one and it exists until it dies. And so, you know, there's, there are some species in nature that are sort of like that. There's, um, some kind of jellyfish or jellyfish like thing that when it reaches old age, it just reverse ages and then goes through its life again and again until something eats it or it gets sick and dies. Um, and there are like, there are a handful of companies that have been around for an incredibly long time. Wikipedia has a wonderful list and, um, What's cool about some of them is like you go back far enough and it has this kind of um mythic ancestry to it. And um that's that's especially true because a lot of these entities, they're either um some some of them are somewhat tied to religion or government or something. So they tend to sort of legitimize their status by having having these kind of mythical, crazy long-term stories. But like they're um there's a Japanese company that's um over 1,400 years old. It's still technically in operation. Unclear to me how much uh, how much business it's actually doing, but it was um, originally founded as a temple construction maintenance company and um, continued doing that for, for a very long time. You also have some uh, breweries in Europe that have been around for a really long time. Again, like many of them are associated either their branding or their legal existence with um, some kind of religious order, which tends to, has to also be pretty permanent. But like... Um, we are not actually surrounded by lots and lots of thousand year old companies. Like if you are um, in the United States and doing business, it's not like Starbucks was founded in the 1100s. No, it was, it was founded in the seventies. And um, a lot of the biggest companies were founded even more recently. So um, like NVIDIA dates back to a meeting at a Denny's in the nineties and Facebook dates back to people hanging out in a boardroom or in a dorm room in the early two thousands. So um we have a lot of a lot of new companies, even though companies could theoretically last forever. And um, it wasn't always the case that the corporations were immortal. So a lot of the earliest corporations that we have records of, they were charted to do a specific thing over a specific time, and then the charter would be renewed or potentially not renewed, depending on how they did. So the early vision of a corporation is that the state takes some set of activities and engages in and gives someone else the right to engage in those activities and either gives them the right to tax or just says you can do business, you know, you can do this thing and you can also make money and pay it to your shareholders. Um, so like a lot of the, um, the East India companies, both, um, the Dutch and, um, the English versions, they, they did have finite charters. Um, and it, I, I wasn't able to track down direct references to this, but some of the early American railroad and canal companies would also have a charter over a certain number of years. Um, the ancestor to, the current J.P. Morgan Chase was the Manhattan Company, which was originally chartered to uh, give drinking water to New York. And um, its its charter actually, I think the charter said that it would be wound up and just shut down if New Yorkers did not have clean drinking water within 10 years of the company's being founded. So there's this old model where a corporation is a way for the government to do outsourcing. And then we have a newer model, which is, no, the corporation is just a way it's like a legal wrapper on a set of assets and on the work of a certain number of people. And in that model, in corporate mortality is, um, it works a little bit differently because there's a sort of genetic transmission among corporations. Like a lot of the way tech companies are run is basically things that Andy Grove figured out 
in the 1970s at Intel. And it's also things that Intel figured out from their founders' previous experience at um, at Fairchild. Like, you know, you should give should give employees options. They should feel like they are participating in upside from the company. Um, in the Fairchild case, like there was an options contract involved, but it was actually the other way around that um, the Fairchild instrument company actually had the option to buy Fairchild Semiconductor and they exercised it. So um, the, the founders put a lot of work into creating this valuable company. And then that just meant that it was a really good deal for the the funders to buy the entire thing from them at a fixed price and uh, get get the equity. So um, that was that was what I ended up concluding was like corporate corporations. We don't need to give them mortality because market forces will kill them over time. They they just end up being mortal by default. Sort of like I guess like the Highlanders, where they do theoretically live forever, but they keep killing each other. Um, so they all. Uh, most of them end up dead after a while, even if they theoretically could just skip that and live a happy, a happy, quiet, peaceful life. Um, but also the companies achieve some level of immortality because when a company goes bankrupt, it's not like the assets disappear. It's not like the people, you know, it's not like everyone at this bankrupt corporation must be executed. No, the, everything, everything of value at the company persists except for the organization itself. And even the organization can sometimes persist where people look at the way that their company was run. And after the company is dissolved, um, they decide they want to just keep doing that and keep doing that with some of the same people, but elsewhere. So, um, you know, examples of that in a lot of places, like, um, a lot of the company mafias, like ex PayPal people, they were pretty much like the way that PayPal ran was a really good way to run a company. So let's start something in a totally different space and do exactly that. Um, you also have the, Tiger Cub companies, so um, hedge funds that were started by alumni of Tiger Management, which wound down in 2000. This Tiger had been in a classic value stock picking firm, and that did really well for a while, did very, very badly in the late 90s. And um, the firm wound down, but it, it did actually wind down at pretty much the low point in value investing. I think they they were within a couple of months of just like the, the end of the worst on relative performance of value versus growth. So a lot of the alumni, um, they knew how to pick stocks and they knew each other. They were already exchanging ideas and um, they were able to build up new companies that were sort of tiger in spirit, but were uh, run by different people. So yeah, in one sense, you don't, you do achieve corporate mortality, not because the legal entity lasts forever, but because the, the organizational norms can can spread out and can be can be basically just permanent features of how people do business in a particular area. And in one of your uh, adjacent posts, um, you also explored sort of the long termism um, of of organizations. Where you, when you explored what would a ten thousand year endowment um, look like, and of course, there's there's also this organization long now that is trying to get us to think in uh, in much longer uh, increments. I, I believe also the similar time frame. Uh, w- what else c- could you say about h- how things would be different if we uh, if, if we thought that way? Yeah, so um, that is it is a fun thought experiment for me of just if you ran the endowment fund for the long now, and they said we want you know we have lots of projects, we have a multi millennium outlook, and so. If there is a worthy cause that, you know, the long term is of the year 6,000, know that the world will end by the year 8,000 unless we do X, like we want to have the money to do X. So how would you allocate your portfolio? And the the disappointing thing about that is like, one, we don't have any financial time series that goes back that far. Like everything goes to zero over those kinds of time periods. I think there are like a handful of bonds that were issued centuries ago that do technically still pay interest, but they're they're very small. So like, I think like the the laziest answer is you would just choose the asset classes that have been around for a really long time. So your long now endowment fund is one, you bury some gold somewhere and um, you then you have to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how how do I make sure that the the knowledge of where this is doesn't get lost, but also that the gold does not get stolen? And that's a hard problem. Um, in fact, I, I wrote a separate piece on this and on the the two asset tests where all information are that it becomes public information or gets deleted forever. And one of the, the pieces I, uh, one of the examples I thought of there was if you have information on where some valuable thing is hidden, or you have information on how to access something of value, you have to pass it to a finite number of people. So if everyone has it, someone just takes your valuable thing. But 
if you give that information to one person and they don't get the thing and or don't pass on the information or don't understand the information, then the thing is lost. So, um, so like Lily's answer is yeah, you bury some gold and then you buy some very long-term Dutch bonds that maybe the uh, there were a couple of Japanese companies that issued thousand-year bonds in the eighties and nineties. Um, but the, the the other way to think about it is, um, and this actually goes back to the the idea of achieving corporate immortality by um, mimetic rather than genetic reproduction. That um, you want to pass down ideas that uh, that will persist for a long time. And there is some evidence that even though in financial terms people can have a drawdown to zero, that um, in economic terms those drawdowns people do tend to bounce back from those drawdowns. So there's really interesting very long-term data on the persistence of social class where um i think it's i think someone was looking at um wills in um i want to say like 15th century florence and looking at the last names of people who left large amounts of property to their descendants at that time and if you look at those last names today you actually still find that doctors and lawyers and other professionals are over the people with those last names are overrepresented in high status, high earning professions. Um, there was there's similar data on China. Like China is one of the only places that was actually able to um, reverse a class hierarchy without just killing everyone of a particular class. Um, and so during, so if you look at income data, I think it's like pre-communist people who were whose families were rich in pre-communist China were actually poorer than average in the Mao period, but now they're richer than average again. And um, there's also similar data on the descendants of slave owners in the American South that in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, they were destitute, like their their main asset class was no longer legal to own, so um, they they lost a lot. But, and so they, they, were, they were much poorer. And then um, if you go a generation forward, they end up being richer than average again. So there is some persistence, like whatever the intergenerational transmission mechanism is, there is some intergenerational transmission of wealth creation ability that persists despite the level of wealth potentially going to zero. And I guess that, that kind of has to be true because a lot of countries' financial markets have gone to zero. Um, their currency has has inflated to infinity or their their economy was wiped out so like you know entire russian economy is basically nationalized after the communist takeover um most of the german economy was sort of shut down and restructured after world war ii similar for the japanese economy but um the countries they well russia didn't end up rich but like the countries it's not like their total wealth went down to zero so there's some recovery in productive capacity and some of that um there's some recovery in individual levels of social status so so really, if you think about the the ten thousand year endowment problem, if you're trying to perpetuate norm behavioral norms over extremely long periods, then you want to select for really good behavioral norms. And the more that you do that, and the more you select for these very long term oriented existential risk aware behavioral norms, the less you actually need a long now foundation specifically, because the problems that it is supposed to solve are problems that are being more broadly solved by society. You know that those norms can be more durable than the financial institution behind them. And so that's what you focus on. So you end up solving solving the endowment problem by saying, we actually can't preserve just pure financial assets indefinitely. They do eventually go to zero, even though some of them appreciate in the meantime, you and you know, you could theoretically imagine rebalancing some global portfolio. Like that actually assumes that. The path of globalization is that we keep getting more and more globalized and that we never need revert from that. But that's probably not a bet that you'd want to make over a 10,000 year period because there have been historical fluctuations in globalization. You know, there's, um, I think, um, global trade peaked in like 19, global trade as a share of GDP, I think it peaked in 1913. And then there was a multi generational decline. And then it starts coming back up in, I think, the 50s and then reaches a new peak. And, couple decades after that and you know, now is at a much higher level but um you if you made some that if you tried to preserve wealth in 1913 and your big idea is i'm going to allocate capital globally well if you're a brit you're probably allocating some capital to germany and austria and other places so that probably gets expropriated or something um or you know you lose all of it because they lost the war and then if you're a german you're allocating capital again to 
Britain, the United States, Russia, France, all these other places where they're they're actually not especially excited to give you your money back at the end. So my guess is that over the broad sweep of history, this is probably it's probably not this monotonic increase in globalization with this one blip from World War One. It's actually a very long cycle. In fact, there's some archaeological evidence of that where um, it's just uh, amazing how far away from where they were minted coins sometimes get found. You know, we find coins like Roman coins in China and, you know, we find these weird like syncretic religions in places where we didn't think that either groups proselytizers actually got to. And, you know, we could tell it's a very old version of that religion. There's, um, there's like some, there's this, um, traditional Christian story that Thomas, the apostle, um, that he traveled to India to proselytize after, after the gospel narrative ends. And there is actually evidence that there were very, very early Christian missionaries in India. And that, that, that particular variant of Christianity is extremely old and like very, very similar to our best guess as to what Christianity was like, uh, 100 AD. So like, there is some evidence that we've had these spikes in globalization before that were not as extreme as today's because they, the technology just wasn't there, but where people were going pretty long distances and there was a lot of cultural contact that um, then diminished to the point where, you know, when, when um, Marco Polo is traveling in that area, it's like this pretty mysterious area, you know, it's a place where, where spices come from and where exotic imported goods come from, but it's not like a place people have actually been to in a really long time. So, um, Long story short, um, there is there is no realistic way to preserve a static quantity of wealth over really long periods, but there's also no known way to just destroy the accumulated wealth of human knowledge and institutional capital and norms of behavior that are pro-social. Um, no one's been successful at completely destroying those over long periods either. So we're probably probably safe without the ten thousand year endowment, but. It's a good, it's a useful thought experiment to ask why, you know, why is it impossible to do that in practice? And why is it that achieving that aim is something that humans actually do do in practice just through a different means? Totally. Hey, everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Real quick, what's the easiest choice you can make? Taking the window instead of the middle seat, outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded, and when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time. Plus, Shopify magic is free for every Shopify seller. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash moment of Zen. Go to shopify.com slash moment of Zen now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash moment of Zen. Segwaying to decision, uh, more short-term decisions, one of the, the themes uh, in, in your writing this past week was uh, thinking about extreme samples from known distributions. So you wrote one post on, uh, you know, working with people after a big failure. And it's funny because in the VC world, a lot of people look at Adam Newman raising a bunch of money or, or founders who've had spectacular failures and then seeing them raise money again and they're asking how. Um, and the same thing happens in hiring too, where people continue to to fail up, so to speak. And then you also wrote about momentum. So l- let's cover both of those uh, both of those ideas. Yeah, and I guess I, I I think I did not actually link to the Astral Codex Ten post that I read recently that got me thinking about that. So um, this is me doing that. But um, Scott Alexander had a really good post called "Against Learning from Dramatic Events" um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was about that. It was basically that. When you look at some really extreme events, it's usually part of a known, well, well, a statistical distribution you could theoretically have been able to estimate. So you look at terrorism and say that 
there are like a fair number, you know, a lot of violent incidents in which one person dies and then a smaller number in which 10 people die and an even smaller number in which 100 people die. And if you extrapolate, you can say that every every once in a while there's a 9-11 level disaster. And these are really, really rare. And um, but they are they're they kind of fit in with the existing distribution. Like you know that there's this power law distribution and that um the really extreme events are just um it's not like every time you double the body count, you have the probability. So um eventually the probability gets basically to zero. It's it's there is a, a fat tail to the, to the distribution. And getting a sample from that fat tail doesn't actually tell you that much new about the distribution. It, it can occasionally. And there's actually some some market history indicating that people do sometimes have to learn from that. So um, we can go into that, actually. So there is an instance in which um, an entire category of professionals did learn from one extreme event, which is 1987. And um, the market crash in 1987. So stocks go down. Um, Dow was down 20.5% in one day. Nothing remotely like that had ever happened. Closest comparable example what would it be 1929, and that was only half decline. So um, this was a really, really extreme event. And one of the things that changed is that prior to 1987, if you looked at stock option prices, options always have um, options prices allow you to back into something called implied volatility, which is just based on the price of like what is what level of volatility would make this option fairly priced, and there. Um, typically, the more extreme the option is relative to the current price of the asset, the higher the implied volatility will be because you just you have to expect a weirder world for for that option to be worth anything. So, if you're buying an option on the S and P 500 dropping 25% in the next two months, um, it just you pay a lot of money for that because it's a really extreme event. You also pay a lot of money for that because buying buying insurance like that. Um, People want to do that because if they have insurance against extreme crashes, then when the market crashes, they cash in the insurance, they sell the option, they use it to buy other stuff that is now cheap. So there are lots of reasons people would want to buy that. And so it used to be that these implied volatilities were actually pretty symmetric, that you would pay a similar premium to bet on a 20% jump in the market over a short time period or a 20% decline over a short time period. Um, traders would call it the volatility smile because if you graph the Implied volatility against stock price, you have a smile. And um, post-1987, it became the volatility smirk because you actually had higher implied volatilities for extreme declines and lower implied volatilities for extreme increases because those declines, there are feedback leaps that can cause the market to crash really fast. And um, there are not, well, there really aren't feedback loops like that that cause the market to go up really fast in the same way. Like there's just, there's not a plausible chain of events. And um, and it's also something where there's not really demand to buy insurance against that. So there are cases where people learn from extreme events, but the people doing the learning are people who come up with pricing models for options. So it's very much a statistics-based, rigorous, factual kind of learning from extreme events. Now, in the um, the N01, like learning from extreme events in one person's career situation, my view is like you can... You can look at the outcomes of people's work as also following some kind of probability distribution. Some people have a very narrow probability distribution. So think of someone who has ticked every box, gotten every promotion, and has gone from you know a well-known elite public school, you know, like a well-known elite high school to well-known elite university to well-known elite employer, and so on. Like they um, they have a pretty narrow standard deviation of outcomes. They've just they've always been able to hit their numbers and meet or exceed expectations. But someone who um, started a company, you know, dropped out of school, started a company, and then spent a year and a half backpacking around Central Asia, and then came back and wrote a novel and started another company in a different industry. Like they clearly have a really wide distribution, and so extreme failures for that person tell you a lot less about, well, what they tell you is what you already knew from their behavior, which is this person is extremely high variance. And they, when they do stuff, they tend to do very extreme stuff. And um, high variance people, like once you, once you know that they're high variance, then it's more straightforward to deal with them. You can think about what kind of responsibilities you'd give that person if you hired them. You can also think of um, if you were funding them, would you just allocate a lot less capital to them because if um, they, you know, they'll probably mess something up and you'll probably lower your money. But if you, if they do well, um, you'll do 
you'll do really well and you just don't need to put a ton of money into it. Like you don't need to quibble about the difference between you got rich investing in this person and you got like plutocratically, generationally rich investing in this person. Like either way, either way you did fine. So um, it's often, often what you've done is one, you have just illustrated that, yes, this is, this is what the distribution of that person's outcomes looks like. And it's maybe symmetric around positive expected value, but with very fat tails on both sides. But what you've also done is you found someone who actually has personal experience with trying something and catastrophically, very publicly failing. And there is there is a shortage of that in certain elite um, jobs where the people who are selected are people who have been some combination of smart and conscientious and lucky. And they can't really estimate the luck. Um, it's very hard to estimate luck, either looking at one person's career path or looking at your own career path. But luck is definitely a factor. And so you really don't know how they will handle uh, an unlucky streak. And that can that can actually make it somewhat riskier to hire someone or work with someone who has never failed before. So that was that was the general view on um, hiring hiring failures, and then that uh, tied into uh, I shouldn't call them failures. Hiring people who have had uh, bad experiences from which they have hopefully learned good things. So that, but it ties into the other thing on momentum. So um, I was listening to a podcast interview with a quant and. He was talking about the momentum factor. So in investing, we we talk about different factors, just different ways that stocks correlate together. So um, those can be country level. Those can be things like the size of the company. So if you own large cap stocks, you've been very happy over the last year. They've largely gone up and um, they they tend to like on days when Meta is up, Microsoft is probably up too and vice versa. Um, and you have other factors like valuation. So if you buy statistically cheap stuff, not only does that tend to make money over time, but it tends to be the case that when one statistically cheap stock goes up, the other ones are more likely to go up too, and vice versa. So there's some correlations there. Um, momentum is a paradoxical strategy because one, it just doesn't sound like it should work. You buy the stocks that have gone up the most in the last year, and you hold them until they're no longer the stocks that have gone up the most in the last year, and you short stocks that have gone down the most in the last year, and so on. And so um, there are these two incompatible behavioral explanations, one of which is Momentum takes advantage of the fact that people blindly extrapolate from the past. And when they see a stock has gone up, they think this is the stock that goes up. So I will buy it. And that makes it go up more. Um, but the other view is no, that momentum is because people under extrapolate from changes in fundamentals. And that when, when Nvidia starts beating revenue estimates by, you know, more than the size of most of its competitors each quarter, that people just don't grasp how how persistent that will be. And they don't grasp that if NVIDIA sells so many H100s one quarter, that it's probably, they probably did not make all of the H100s that they could have sold. So they'll sell even more than next quarter and more than next quarter and so on. And so in that view, momentum is just capturing the fact that people have to completely update their worldview around a company in order to properly value it. And you could just assume that not everybody makes that update at the same time. But the other view of momentum from this, uh, this interview with, um, so when he's on Twitter, his handle is macrocephalopod. Um, very, very good follow. Um, he says that momentum is this missing factor. It is something that you could have put a label on, you could have put a name on, but you don't have a name for it. So an example of that would be if you look at early March 2020, so before the market started actually crashing because of the pandemic, but around the time when people were thinking about it and talking about it and maybe placing some bets in the market on it, what you would have seen is that um, Zoom was way up and like things tied to remote work were doing really well, that things tied to travel were doing badly, but also things like um, movie theater chains were starting to lag the rest of the market, that people were starting to bet that there just won't be as many gatherings in these places. Now, if you had a factor in your model that was, how exposed is this company to a um, global pandemic that, um, you know, that spreads, that it's a respiratory virus, so people can't gather closely, you could have said, well, that's that's what explains this, that the the companies with positive weighting on that are going up, the companies with negative weighting are going down. But instead, what you do is you look at this list of companies that have done unusually well um, based on whatever else is in your model, and the companies that have done unusually poorly, you say, there is something causing these companies all as a group to behave differently from what the model says their typical behavior should be. And for now, we don't have a label for it, but it is clearly something that 
people are noticing waking up to they're trading a bunch of different things on this based on whatever they know. So we can actually infer that more people will wake up to this fact and that the prices will continue to react in the same direction. And that is indeed what happened, that if you were betting on the COVID, if you were betting on the pre-COVID, like anticipatory pandemic winners, you did really, really well as the pandemic happened. And then there was a point at which suddenly a lot of this stuff starts to reverse. And I think by that time, people actually had labels for this. So people would talk about things like the reopening plays are up. So they'd say theme parks are up, airlines are up, cruise lines are up, like everything that is, every business that is a place people go and stay in fairly close quarters for an extended period. It started doing well as, um, started doing well, like I think late 2020 when people just started thinking the world is probably not going to, like this is not the last year in which anyone's ever stepping onto a plane. And then um, when the vaccine was released, then of course they those stocks were all the ones that were the the fastest, biggest beneficiaries. And you also saw the the former COVID winners, which people mostly just labeled COVID winners. Those started to slow down as people started to say, "Okay, not everyone is going to be only using Zoom as their means of professional communication forever. Not everybody, you know, people people are stepping off the peloton and going outside, and so some of this stuff is going to be revert, and we'll get back to something closer to closer to the old normal, but still still a different new normal." So um, that was, I think, a useful way to think about momentum. And the way that I thought about that is you can actually apply that to real-world cases where you see momentum. And momentum can show up. And people, when people are using momentum as a signal, they're using it at many different timescales. So you can look at things like intraday momentum. And what that's usually a proxy for is someone is either buying a large position or selling a large position. And they're doing that over time. And so... The fact that this stock underperformed in the last 10 minutes does tell you something about it's also underperforming in the next 10 minutes. Um, but in, in your just lived existence, there's this momentum factor of it can take, you know, an hour to start writing a blog post or an hour to start doing a program. And then once you're actually doing it, your productivity becomes more severely correlated. Like you get into it and you, you start to focus on it and you're able to keep going. So you do have some level of momentum. Um, this also happens at the level of um, careers and, and career accomplishments. Um, it is just weird how many cases there are where someone had multiple really big inventions, multiple really big innovations that happened pretty much back to back. Uh, probably the most famous example is Isaac Newton, where he um, Cambridge shuts down. So he goes home and is just hanging out and invents calculus and discovers universal gravitation and does some other experiments. And I think in that case, the missing factor is some combination of one, developing the mental tools that you need that will actually apply in multiple areas. So really not a coincidence that calculus and gravity coincided so much because calculus makes it just a lot easier to predict, it makes it a lot easier to do the math on things like where should the planets go, assuming there is this inverse square law that is talking on them. Um, so it, it helps with that. But then there's also just a confidence factor of um, if you do make a really big discovery, then you tend to start thinking of yourself as someone who can make such discoveries. And then the next time there's a thread you start pulling on, you are more confident that this is actually something worth pursuing, that you know, you can actually get somewhere pretty far with this. And then the last piece on momentum, um, it goes back to that the idea of extremely tracked elites who have been doing, you know, they've been 99th percentile in everything they've ever done. And now they have really prestigious jobs and they've never really messed up. And in that case, one of the factors is just luck. And um, if you, there's a, I think there was a paper on this a while ago that was looking at just, I think they were looking at the, the variance in standardized test scores from people who take the same test multiple times. And what they found was that there's actually just enough variance. You don't really know who is in the 99th percentile if you're using a test like the SAT, which is trying to measure just general aptitude. Um, if you're using a test like that, you don't actually know which test takers were truly Harvard material, which ones were actually, you know, just as good at the SAT as the average Harvard person, you know, average person who gets admitted to Harvard, but they happen to get a couple questions that were tough or they just didn't get enough sleep the night before or something like that. You don't know who uh, happened, like, there were five questions they didn't know. They guessed on all five. They happened to get all five right. That happened some percentage of the time. So there's some level of luck in um, hitting those very, very selective thresholds, such that if someone has hit all of those thresholds, they are almost certainly going to be overrated by other people and overrated by themselves. 
And that um, one of the things that stands out about the momentum factor as an investment factor is that it has some really, really serious drawdowns. So there are times when the absolute last thing you want to own is what's been doing well over the last year. And that, you know, again, if if these um, correlations, if the momentum factor exists because there is some external driver that causes these stocks to do what they do, if that external driver changes, then they all lose money at the same time. Um, you know, the losers become winners, the winners become losers. If you are a long short investor, so you're long the former winners and you're short the former losers, you lose on both sides of the trade. That's one reason that the drawdowns can be so painful. And I think that that's um, that's something that we do tend to see where people have just one success after another, and then one big public failure, and then that's pretty much it. Um, they're you know they they still continue to exist, they continue to work and do stuff, but never at the same level. And so I think it's just it it's like the momentum factor is something you should be thinking about when you either had a lucky streak or an unlucky streak is that one there is probably some kind of explanation like there is some real world reason that you went from not succeeding at something to succeeding multiple times in a short time period but also that it is entirely possible that there was some level of luck and that you should expect some mean reversion just because that is that is the nature of things that sometimes we mean revert and you should expect the mean reversion to the extent that you identify with your most extreme success as most extreme features the mean reversion is just very emotionally painful because you you think of yourself as a 99.9th percentile person in X. It turns out you're really 98th percentile and you were lucky for a while. Now you've sort of lost your identity because 98th percentile means there are so many more people who are much better than you at the thing that you defined your life by. I, I want to segue into another piece that you wrote about that touches uh, very close to home, actually, uh, the economics of trade racks. Uh, and uh, how you talked about sort of trade magazines and industry newsletters, particularly sort of the uh, the sort of transaction involving Informa and Tech Target, and it's close to home because I was inspired to build Turpentine partially based on Industry Dive, um, which sort of these niche publications that I'm sort of starting it as a as a podcast um, that then sold to to Informa. So why don't you talk about what what you find uh, so fascinating about about that business? Yeah. So trade publications, they are a really weird industry because they are these very low circulation magazines that talk about something incredibly narrow that um, only a handful of people in the world are interested in, but they're almost always interested because of a direct financial incentive. So when I was researching this, I was just, I picked an industry at random and um, I actually found, um, looks like three, no, four separate trade journals you could read if you were in the gravel business. So you've got Rock Products Magazine, Stone Sand and Gravel Review, Stone World, and Pit and Quarry Magazine. And if you're reading those, you are um, you are probably, you're going to be fairly loyal, right? If you cared about gravel last year, you probably care about gravel this year. You're probably not spending your own money. Or if you are, it's because you're the head of the company. So you're spending pre-tax dollars and um, you you do expect to get some kind of financial gain from it. You're also probably a decent source for the magazine. You know, if you are reading about gravel every day, then you probably have opinions on gravel and um, those opinions probably matter to other people in your industry. So um, there's a very, very messy continuum between what is actually advertising in one of these free journals and what is the underlying content. Um, they have a lot of pricing power because if it was worth it for you to know this and, you know, it makes you 1% better at your business and your business makes a million dollars a year, well, now... Um, if you pay 1K a year for the magazine and the benefit to you is 10K, that's still a really good deal, but you're also paying 1K for a fairly thin, you know, um, not especially well-written, not especially entertaining publication. Uh, and they're also, because they're hard to scale, they can be these wonderful cash flow businesses. There are trade magazines that have been in the same family for multiple generations because you don't really have any reason to sell. Um, maybe you lose interest in the business, but um, presumably if you started a trade magazine about it, you're fairly interested and it'll probably keep you going. Maybe you don't have any heirs who actually want to run it. And so you do eventually sell it. So they do, they do consolidate slowly, but, um, it's really tough to disrupt them. You, to disrupt them, you have to, um, somehow get the interviews that someone who has on their subscriber list, everyone you'd want to interview, you have to get all those interviews and get them, you know, do better interviews than the, the legacy players. So, um, and also like you don't, the writers don't have to be very good. They they do have to be informed about the industry, but they don't have to be very skilled at the craft of prose to write a decent trade journal. So 
Um, there are just lots of lots of standard costs and standard issues in the media industry that simply don't apply to trade magazines. And so that's like that's the standard model. You have very very expensive publication. Everyone who reads it is um, is in some way insensitive to the price, and they're very likely to stick around forever. So great cash flow business that you can't scale because the other industry that could support a trade journal already has one, and somebody else started it. And so you're the same competitive mode that keeps you safe also means it's hard to expand. Um, Tech Target, which is uh, the company that did this kind of convoluted deal where they they got Informa's publications, including Industry Dive, and then um, Informa paid cash to Tech Target. Tech Target paid the cash as a dividend to their shareholders, and Informa ends up with most of the stock in Tech Target. Tech Target's model is is different. What they are doing is actually capturing leads. So if you read one of their publications, you can read it for free, but you have to put in a business email address, and then they sell those leads to people who are selling whatever the relevant product is. Um, Tech Target does a lot of SEO, so you will just find their publications if you're Googling anything, pretty much anything, any unexciting way for the IT department to spend millions of dollars, you will probably find Tech Target articles addressing that topic. And what Tech Target wants is they want to be able to surface when someone is doing some kind of spending that is, again, like not newsworthy, except in that very specific sector. And then they want to be able to sell that person's contact information to everyone who could be a potential vendor for that deal. So it becomes basically a, a business of creating this very densely connected node in a network that is just going to be imperfectly connected. So you're you're reducing the number of hops it takes to get the salesperson connected with the CTO who's going to make the purchasing decision. And if if the central node is always tech target, then tech target can charge a lot of money for expediting that interaction. And once you know that your competitors are all getting pretty good leads at some known price and they can turn those leads into new business, then you pretty much have to do that too. And then with a lot of um, enterprise type sales, like the actual, the actual ad slash the initial contact is very far from being the end of the story. So if you're doing consumer advertising, it is entirely possible where that someone, they look at the ad, they see a picture of the product, they see some copy, they see a price, they click buy now, they buy now. Like it, you can go from, it can be 60 seconds from, I've never heard of this product to I have ordered this product. But with enterprise, it's more like it's a you know multi. It's a process often measured in quarters. There's a long period of figuring out the exact parameters of the deal. Both sides have to get to know each other. The deal is going to last for an extended period. So um, that initial contact is um, not the it's not the main dominant thing. But because of that same time lag, starting the conversation early and starting it earlier than your competitors is actually a pretty big advantage. So. Um, if this, if there's a company that has never bought in some category before and they're going to make their first purchase a year from now, and you hear about it right away and your competitor hears about it in six months, well, by the time they actually make their purchase a year from now, you've known them twice as long as your, as the competing salesperson has known them. So you're much more likely to get the deal all else being equal. And you've also had more time to figure out exactly what the deal should look like. So I thought that was, it was an interesting evolution because they, they took some business that had this wonderful combination of price insensitive subscribers and price insensitive advertisers, they actually got rid of charging a price insensitive side for, for participation and then still turned it into a viable and interesting business. So I guess like the long story there is, um, that the, the story of industry structure is just never over. There is, there's almost always some opportunity to totally change pricing and totally change when what's being emphasized how, and then have a completely different model that, you know, we'll see how it works, but I think. It seems to work pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm building off that. Let, let's uh, brainstorm the turpentine business for for a few minutes because um, you know we were inspired by Industry Dive. My understanding is that I mean, you, you just outlined sort of the whole sort of ecosystem of companies. My my understanding of Industry Dive was that it was free for the reader, and they, what they try to do is aggregate as many readers as as possible who are CFOs or HR, you know, in this niche, and then they would charge the advertiser, you know, up the wazoo to to sell. To you know, and they'd be able to track. Say, hey, I want to talk to HR professionals in pharma or something because they had both positions and sectors. Um, and so that's my goal too: um, is to have that same trackability and sort of you know high spend, high ticket, you know high value audience in terms of enterprise buyers. 
but also to go deep dives on different sectors. Um, and so I'm trying to do different formats. Like they do publications, it's a lot of news. I'm trying, I'm starting with podcasts, but then I want to go from there to, you know, newsletters um, and um, sort of sort of almost like Lenny Rachitsky for, for, for different positions, right? Um, but then also, so that, that's one avenue I'm exploring, but then the other avenue I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do is almost build uh, something like a Tegas, but podcast first. So Tegas, of course, uh, you know, of course, you know the business, but for the audience, um, they, they have an expert network like a GLG, but they record the calls and then um, have this sort of compendium of transcripts that they sell access to. And they're able to get people to record the calls because they do a discount. Basically, it's cheaper if you use Tegas than a GLG for the same call. But you, you agree to record it. Then they build up this data asset. They now have, you know, I think like 70,000 or 50,000, some crazy amount of transcripts. And I was wondering if you could actually do that podcast first. Like I've recorded about a thousand podcasts. If I have, you know, a hundred podcasts, maybe I take all the transcripts, put it behind a paywall. If those podcasts themselves are valuable information that investors would pay to, you know, have access to. And maybe some of that is some of the podcasts are free and they're almost like advertising for this paywall content. Some of it is behind a paywall. And the reason I thought about this is because I was thinking about, I, I saw this Forbes hit piece a few months ago on, um, on uh, Stability AI. And the reporter claimed to talk to 30 people about Stability AI, um, ex-investors, ex-employees, investors, et cetera. And then I looked at Tegas and they didn't have that much on Stability AI. They tend to do later stage public companies, et cetera. And um, I was like, wow, this journalist might be sitting on the best qualitative um, data you know, on, uh, on Stability AI. They're under monetizing. They're not price discriminating. Um, and that, and so what Tegas does is they price discriminate tremendously. Like if they released all their transcripts, it's not like they would go viral. It's not like there's a huge audience for super niche, you know, customer references. It just so happens that the small people, the few amount of people that listen to it will pay a lot for it. And similarly, uh, I wonder if, if we could do something similar, but like from a media first and, and instead of or in addition to, you know, building this expert network as a way to get these calls. So, I guess I'm curious, as you hear me describe the, the turpentine business, anything that seems more compelling or less compelling, or what would be your advice to me? Yeah, so I think, I think the first thing to think about is that email newsletters and physical magazines have this wonderful property where you know everyone who's reading it. You get their email address, and so you look at the product of the ad sign, you're like, wow, this person works at Facebook, this person works at Salesforce. Like, I should, you know, I, you can look them up on LinkedIn and see what they do, and so um, it's a lot harder to do that with podcasts because you just don't know who is listening. So I would view, in this case, I would view podcasts as part of the top of funnel. And then the next thing to think about is on the expert network side, um, there is this barbell where there are two two frequent ways that people use expert networks. One of which is um, I, you know, I'm relentlessly tracking Google, and every quarter I need to have a very very informed opinion about whether they will beat or miss estimates. So I'm going to have my list of 10, 20, 50 media buyers, and I'm going to do a call with them every quarter at the end of the quarter and figure out what trends are, figure out where trends are, try to triangulate things. You know, this person's overweight casual games, so they're going to have a view that's very much more Facebook related than Google related. This person's in, they do a lot of personal finance stuff, so it's going to be very heavily Googly, et cetera. And um, so it's the the super timely stuff where you need to know exactly what trends are inflecting right now and what's driving them so you can figure out just they are. But then the other piece is you are you are a hedge fund analyst, you're a private equity VP, and your boss has just told you, hey, we are considering this very large investment in this industry you know nothing about. And you you realize my time is actually sufficiently valuable that I can pay someone, you know, I could pay GLG a thousand dollars an hour, or I could pay Tikus, you know, less than that. And just talk to someone who understands the business. And I can ask them all the stupid questions that I have and get those questions out of the way for, you know, someone I'm never going to talk to again. And then when I talk to management, I have all the sophisticated questions instead of the really obvious ones. And so you would sort of see that in some of the TGIS transcripts. In fact, um, sometimes if you, um, so I use TGIS and sometimes you can actually see if there's one obscure company that has a bunch of calls, you can see the analysts doing the calls just getting smarter and smarter as as the calls progress. And um, by the end, they know exactly what to ask. And they are actually asking about some of these really granular trends. And it's like, you know, I heard pricing was 
three points light last quarter. How are things looking? Is so-and-so still discounting, et cetera? Whereas the first call is like, okay, what, what do you actually do? Like, how do you pronounce that thing? What is that thing for, et cetera? Um, so I think you, you want to think about, is there a piece of that barbell that you can actually target reliably or do you want to do both? And I think in general, it is better probably to start with the high level qualitative things. So having, you know, one breakdown of one aspect of an industry in every interview, and then use that to get people in the funnel. Maybe they listen to your breakdown on some industry, they sign up later on for a newsletter about that industry. Then the newsletter gives them the more day-to-day, you know, um, decision-changing trends. Like, I guess the thought experiment would be, um, there's going to be a set of things where it has some mild, like a set of content you can create where success means you have some mild effect on how someone makes decisions over the next five years. And then there's another category where if they are not adjusting their calendar as they are listening to the content or as they're reading the newsletter saying like, I have to go to this conference. I have to talk to this person as soon as possible. I've got to drop everything and read this, this regulatory filing, whatever. Um, if they're not doing that, then you have not actually given them good information because you're, you, what you can't do if you're selling something to, um, people who either are making investment decisions or strategic decisions, you can't make the decision for them. Um, one, you probably just, you know, if you were really, really good at that, you would be the person at Citadel who's listening to the call, you know, doing the call and not the person selling them the information. But two, um, they, they have their own method for actually incorporating all of this information from third party sources and turning it into their own thesis. So you just can't really interfere with that. It's very proprietary. And then, yeah, the, if the person making the purchasing decision for your product worries that this product makes their job obsolete, then you're probably not going to sell much of it. So, um, you can kind of leave off the last bit of reaching the conclusion. And uh, this is something I do in the diff. Like I, I will write about a company and either, you know, sometimes I will say mostly nice things. Sometimes I will say mostly not so nice things, but, uh, I tend to not end a piece in the newsletter with, you know, therefore I'm buying the stock. I, I have done that occasionally. And, um, I, I, you know, with, with mixed results, but it, it's been, um, it's something that I do because sometimes I'll write about something and it's interesting, but I ultimately conclude that it's, it's interesting and fairly priced or interesting, but I'm not going to resolve the fundamental question here. But sometimes I, I write about a company and I'm like, this is a great company or this is a disaster and I do trade on it and then disclose that in the newsletter. So, um, I do, you know, a little of that getting all the way to the conclusion, but it's definitely not the goal. Like I, I don't go into any deep dive thinking I'm going to figure out if this is a buy right now. It's more like I'm going to figure out the company pretty well. And then the hope is that three months from now, I will read some new story that suddenly resolves the big question. I'll look at the stock price. Stock price does not reflect the questions resolved. So now it's time to trade. Yeah. That, um, that is, uh, well, uh, advice, uh, well, uh, well, well received. Um, I want to be mindful of, uh, of, of time. So let's, uh, let, let's wrap here. Um, Bern, always, uh, always a pleasure. And until next time. All right. This was fun. Later. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars and check out Bern's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 